Uh, this morning, you may have noticed on your, on your way in, not just today, but these past few weeks now, uh, the beautiful Christmas trees out in the foyer up here on stage, which you may not have noticed, uh, out there at least, unless you look more closely, is that unlike the typical pre-lit uh, Christmas trees you find in most stores these days, because who wants to string up their own lights, right, if you don't have to separately, we did in fact have to string on lights for all of the trees out there. They used to be pre-lit, but apparently there are still some trees today, inexplicably, on which one little light burning out means the entire tree goes out. And when all the lights go out, on a pre-lit tree, you've basically got three options, right? You can either get lazy and just string lights over top of the old ones, which is what I would do if I was in charge. Uh, but my wife was, was in charge, and she ruled that option out. Or you can trash the tree altogether. That's what um, Scott did with the, one of the trees up here that went out. Or if you're frugal, like me, uh, you insist on using the existing tree, which means you're stuck delighting all the lights off the old tree, the burned-out strands, before you can relight them. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to delight a pre-lit tree, but uh, at least on the three trees out there, I kid you not, every single branch, not just the limbs that were connected to the trunk, I'm talking every branch shooting off of a branch, little branch tip, was wrapped, I think, three or four times at least in lights. It took Kelly and Eric and, and uh, who, Jesse and Melissa and uh, Stephen and, and myself, I think it took us, what, probably at least an hour, the six of us, with scissors, um, just to cut all the lights off those three trees. Must have been well over a thousand lights per tree, I think. So on your way out, you can uh, stop by and admire and appreciate in a whole new light, pun intended, all the work that went into those trees. This morning is week three of Advent, the season in the church calendar in which we celebrate and anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus. And our Advent sermon series, we've entitled The Weary World Rejoices. We're focusing this year in particular on both the weariness of the world into which Christ came 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, but also the world to which he has promised he will one day return again in the future. But we're also focusing, more importantly, on the joy that we can find in him in the midst of our weariness. And so two weeks ago, we discussed the weariness of waiting God's people waited 2,000 years for their Messiah, for his first visit, and we've been waiting 2,000 years since then and counting for his return. But we await his return with hopeful joy. And last week, we considered the weariness of monotony and the joy that can be ours even amidst the seemingly tedious, mundane repetitiveness of life because Christ brings new meaning and joy and wonder to every aspect of our lives. And this morning, we're talking about joy amidst toil. Toil. Toil is defined as hard and continuous work, exhausting labor or effort. And weariness itself was defined as a physically or mentally exhausted state from hard work, exertion, and strain. And so any sermon series that is purposed with, with dissecting the various dimensions of weariness has to deal with this topic of toil. 
What comes to mind for you this morning when I invoke that word toil? Maybe you've had a similar story recently with uh, involving Christmas lights. Maybe Christmas decorating. Maybe Christmas shopping for some of you. Typically, by this time in the Christmas season, mid-December, many of us are already beginning to feel the exhaustion of it, of attending Christmas events, of hosting Christmas events and parties Right? We, we tell ourselves every year that, that we're going to cut back so we can just simply enjoy the season. But then the invites start rolling in, right? The, the staff party, the life group party, the, the neighborhood party, the family party. And then you start thinking about you know, all these great St. Louis traditions that you don't want to miss out on once a year. Tilly's Park and the brewery lights and the Garden Glow and historic St. Charles. And before you know it, you've filled up every night of the calendar for the entire month of December and you've worn yourself out. Maybe God is using this Advent season in 2020 to slow us down and to give us forced rest from our usual Christmas toil. And yet, I suspect, for many of you, if you're like me, you've faced new, unforeseen toils here in 2020, right? The toil of rethinking your entire way of doing church during a nationwide shutdown. The toil of making church happen when you resume uh, with, the, with the 25% capacity limit. Basically needing half of the people in attendance to serve as volunteers just to make a Sunday morning service happen. The toil of trying to plan a 2021 calendar for the church when you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring, much less three months from now, six months from now, a year from now. Who knew that life could be so toilsome, so laboriously tiring during a pandemic when life paradoxically feels like it's been put on hold? Friends, do you know what the remedy is for toil? I want to suggest to you this morning that our hearts are crying out for the very thing that Jesus stands ready to offer us this morning. It's one of his most well-known, most beloved, most comforting invitations in all the Gospels from Mark chapter 11. Come to me, all you who labor, who are weary, some translations, and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Rest is the cure for toil. Is anyone else's heart this morning crying out for rest? But we're going to see this morning that Jesus' rest here in Matthew 11 in context isn't just about holiday busyness or pandemic stress. The context for Jesus' invitation to rest in Matthew 11 sheds light for us on the kind of toil that was rampant in first century Judaism all around Jesus. Jesus alludes to three types of toil specifically in this passage that I'm going to suggest correlate to three ways in which we can respond to Jesus in a wrong way, a toilsome, woeful tiring way and we're going to see that each of these toils are in no way unique to Jesus's first century audience we still face the temptation of these toils today and that makes Jesus's offer of a rest to us just as relevant today as 2,000 years ago so 
What are these three types of toil that our souls so desperately need rest from? Let's read and find out together. Would you stand with me as you're able this morning for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 11? We're going to be in verses 20 through 30. If you want to flip there in your Bibles, if you haven't already, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to give you one of those as well. Early Christmas gift from West Hills. Just visit the info bar after the service. But hear the word of the Lord this morning. And Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done, and you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable, tolerable, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, but my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, we thank you for the freedom that you invite us into, the rest that you offer us this morning, that you promise us can be ours this morning if we will but repent and turn to you in faith. Jesus, we thank you for making a way for us, for making it possible for us to rest, to rest of all our self-righteous attempts to justify ourselves and instead to simply turn to you in faith. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who is tired, who is weary, who is tired of running from you or attempting to please you by their own merit, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning, their spiritual eyes, open their heart this morning to hear your invitation, your gospel good news invitation to them this morning of rest. You can rest and trust me 
to be your righteousness. Jesus, would you call a sinner to yourself this morning and give them rest? For your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Point number one, Jesus offers us the joy of rest from our rejection of him. Our rejection of him. Verses 20 through 24 are addressed to the skeptic. I've tried to label each of these three toilsome responses, wrong-headed responses to Jesus for you in a mnemonic device. The skeptic. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. And you, Capernaum, the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. It would have remained until this day. Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament epitomized Israel's enemies. You read Isaiah 23, Ezekiel 26 through 28, Amos chapter 1. God had declared, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets and the sword against her on every side. And yet Jesus said, it's going to be even worse than that for Chorazin and Bethsaida, for these towns in which he had worked so many miracles, who had no excuse, they were left with no excuse not to believe on Jesus. We should all remember the fate of Sodom, right? That was uh, over the summer in our Genesis sermon series. I'll give you a hint. It's where we get the phrase fire and brimstone. Right? But Jesus rebukes Capernaum and says, hey, if you think what happened to Sodom was bad, just wait for what is coming to you. If I had performed my miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd still be a thriving metropolis today. Here's the point. Here's the point for us. Speaking of toil, it was hard work for these people to reject Jesus based on the miracles they had personally witnessed to deny that he was the Son of God. Like the mental gymnastics you have to go through to watch Jesus heal someone who you know was born crippled, you know was born blind, deaf, mute, to raise someone from the dead. Like people had relationships with these, with these you know, corpses. I'd imagine you were in the, the funeral procession for the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. And he was a friend of yours. You touched his cold, limp, lifeless body. You could smell his rotting flesh. And then Jesus just casually walks up and touches the corpse and says, get up. And he does. Listen, I don't know if any of y'all are into magic like David Blaine and Chris Angel Mind Freak. Uh, I could watch that stuff all day long, but then it bothers me so much. Like the amazing tricks, sleight of hand that these guys can pull off that then I have to go and spend even more time searching out, you know, YouTube videos for explaining. How do they do it? The secrets. Right? And the thing that makes it magic is that there's always a secret. <laughs> there's always a rational explanation. But friends, Jesus didn't do magic tricks. He worked miracles. He literally defied, bent, changed, altered the, the laws of science and nature in front of people's eyes. But then he warned them, you better be careful now 
because you know too much now to just turn and walk away and pretend like you never saw anything, to try and, and, and just go and forget that you ever met me because now you know that if you were forced to deal with the implications of what you've witnessed today, the firsthand accounts in person that you've seen in your midst, it, it might have massive ramifications for the entire rest of your life. Right? This was the guy who called people to leave their fathers and mothers, to leave their spouses and children, to come follow him instead. Leave everything and everyone you've ever known and loved to follow me. That's scary. It's exciting if it's true, if he's really the Messiah, if he's God in the flesh, he's worth it. And a few people jumped at the chance and they never looked back. But for the vast majority of people, even in Jesus' day, maybe especially in Jesus' day, who came into contact with him, who personally ate the bread and the fish that he miraculously multiplied before their very eyes, left and went home that night and tried to convince themselves that they, they had to just be seeing things. Because if it was real, then he was really the Messiah. And if he was really the Messiah, they really had to deal with that and follow him, even if it meant following him to their deaths, to take up their cross just as he had. And many of his closest followers, friends, did just that. And their deaths, I want to suggest to you, their deaths offer us today, 2,000 years later, perhaps the most compelling apologetic, the most convincing reason for believing in the truth of the gospel story that there is. I've said this many times. Sane people won't die unnecessarily for something they know is a lie. Let me unpack that for you. If you're willing to go to your death for a belief that you hold so tightly, then you're either insane right, you're, you're, or you're brainwashed, like the Branch Davidians, David Koresh, Jim Jones, right, or you're just really badly mistaken, like today's radical jihadists, right, who believe with all their hearts that their deaths buy them a one-way ticket to paradise with 72 virgins, and they, they really believe it. They just don't know that it's actually a lie. They're really badly mistaken. Or you know it's a lie, third option, but you still choose to die for some ulterior altruistic motive. I think of like the prisoner of war who's captured and tortured but refuses to divulge information. He knows he's lying. He really does know where the troops plan to attack next, but he's willing to die for the lie. But sane people will not die unnecessarily for something they know is a lie. And so when we consider these witnesses of the dozens, the hundreds of first century Christian martyrs who willingly marched to their deaths rather than renounce their faith in Christ, I'm not talking about faith like I believe in things I haven't seen like the jihadist. I'm talking about faith like I watched Jesus die and get buried on Friday, and then I watched him walk through a wall and eat some fish with us on Sunday. Right? I had a conversation with him. So you can kill me if that's what you got to do, but I'm just telling you, he warned us that anybody who denies me in front of people, I'm going to deny, the Son of Man will deny before the Father in heaven, and so I, I'm going to keep the bigger picture in mind here. I'm going to keep eternity in mind. Kill me if you want. I, I, I'm, I'm sticking with Jesus. 
There was no ulterior motive for the disciples to die for Jesus. That's the most ridiculous theory that some skeptics still posit today. You know, it's all fun and games, convincing people that Jesus was the Messiah and you were his best friend, and so now you need to follow me and give me all your money. This idea that the disciples were a bunch of greedy, power-hungry opportunists, that theory works right up until the point that the disciples' necks were on the chopping block, right? And then any sane person, any sane disciple tied to a stake, given one last chance to renounce their faith in Jesus before you're set on fire, you're going to come clean and admit that it was all just a ruse. So maybe they were just badly mistaken. Maybe the disciples thought that Jesus came back from the dead, but they were wrong. Maybe he never actually died, the swoon theory. Or maybe they wanted to believe in him so bad that their minds just conjured up this idea of the resurrection, the hallucination theory. Maybe they all lost their sanity. Collectively, dozens of people just went crazy and started seeing the exact same visions. See, that's the problem. Michael Lacona explains hallucinations are like dreams. They're private occurrences. You can't share a hallucination with someone any more than you can wake up your spouse in the middle of the night and ask him or her to join you in the dream that you were having. The stolen body theory, the mass conspiracy theory, one by one, friends, they all fall apart until you're left with just one alternative. Maybe, just maybe, it actually happened. Like, like maybe the resurrection of Jesus these, these multiple eyewitness accounts, disciples went to their deaths rather than renounce what they'd seen. It's either the biggest hoax in human history or maybe it really happened. It's the most rational explanation of all by far if you've actually researched the alternatives. But back to toil, it, it actually takes quite a lot of work to disbelieve in Jesus, to reject him. You might be familiar with C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma, this idea that Jesus was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He can't have just been a good teacher, a good prophet, because that option went out the window the moment he started claiming to be God. Now he's either certifiable right, or he's, he's, he's trying to dupe people or he's Lord. Or the fourth option, of course, is that all of his followers who subsequently wrote about him were lunatics. But unless you believe they were all crazy, they were all liars, we've been through the options, you're left with the the inconvenient truth that perhaps Jesus was actually exactly who he claimed to be. The Lord, God in the flesh. But today, rather than deal with the implications of that truth, that there really is a God, and I'm not him, many people in today's world not only reject Jesus, they reject the very notion of a transcendent God altogether. We are surrounded by people in today's world who would rather believe that the entire universe just popped into existence randomly by chance, sheer dumb luck. Right? The, the, the same is true of planet Earth with all of its unique, impossibly precise conditions per, uh, perfectly suited for life on Earth. That the same is, is true of humanity, that humanity too is the happy accident of the unguided process of evolution. We're all just chimps who grew up. 
And therefore, there's no absolute truth or morality, there's no objective meaning to life, and there's no ultimate destination to which we should hope and aspire. The afterlife is, a, is a, just a, a lie as well. Who's excited to, to turn into dirt and get eaten by worms? Millions of people who would rather believe all of it than to have to deal with the implications of a universe created by and sovereignly ruled over a God who's not them. Friends, if you have eyes and a brain, it's really hard. It's really hard to reject the truth that there is a God. Romans chapter 1 says God has made it blatantly apparent that he exists. We all know it on a deep level, even if we don't want to believe it. And he has a son named Jesus. And you need to know this morning that he died and he rose from the grave to forgive you for your sins. But if you reject him, especially in the face of such overwhelming evidence for him, evidence to which you have now been exposed, you will not have the benefit when your name is called and you stand before the judgment throne that some of the unreached peoples who live in remote parts of the world and have literally never even heard the name of Jesus and will have to throw themselves on God's mercy when they stand before him, you no longer have that option. You know too much. If you reject him now, it will be worse for you on that day than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't reject him. Don't be a skeptic. Repent and trust in Jesus today, and you will be saved. Turn to him in faith. Point number two, second invitation. Jesus offers us the joy of rest from our researching about him our rejection of him, and our researching about him. Verses 25 through 27 are, are, are addressed to the speculator. Jesus declared in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, but you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom... The Son chooses to reveal him. Here's the irony, friends, the sort of cruel irony, is that even though it's absolutely absurd not to believe in God's existence when you're faced with the evidence, yet to know that God, like to really know him, not just to know about him, not just to look around the universe for some clues, divine fingerprints, and, and to try and piece together what God must be like from creation. I'm talking about knowing him like you know your best friend in the world. Even better than that, to know God, it's impossible if it's left up to you and your own toiling and striving and researching you will never know God you can toil all you want you can read all the books you want about him in your own wisdom and understanding and you will never know God which kind of makes sense right when you consider just how utterly other God is how supernatural literally beyond nature not just outside of on a higher plane of existence than nature itself but but beyond natural man's ability to even comprehend such a god with our finite tiny little pea brains 
right? As complex as our brains are, and they're more complex than, than, than anything else we know of in the universe, our brains, we are still very stupid compared to the God who designed them and gave them to us, relatively speaking, right? We sometimes make the comparison. It would be like an ant trying to understand us, humans, which is really a bad comparison because at least ants can, can, can visibly you know, observe us directly. And we didn't create ants. Like the magnitudes of difference between an ant and us and then us and God, it's, just, it's, it's not even in the same ballpark. We, you and I, do not stand a prayer of knowing God unless we pray to know God. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him, what? Ask God. Pray, and it will be given to him. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. That's the thing. It's got to be given to you. It's got to be opened to you. Because the knowledge of God can only come from God. Religion says, figure it out. You know, work out the formulas to, to, to understand God and put them in your little box. Revelation says, uh-uh, I transcend. You're not going to figure me out here unless I, I come down and I show you and I reveal it to you. Religion, revelation, bottom up, top down. That's what Jesus says here in Matthew 11, verse 26. It's a result of God's gracious will. Grace is a free gift you didn't deserve. Verse 27, Jesus says, I must choose to reveal God to you. He actually uses that word reveal twice here. Friends, religion says, research, figure it out. Study diligently, toil hard after the knowledge of God. Do you know that there were some Jewish leaders in Jesus' day who literally had the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew Tanakh, memorized every single word of it? Anyone here? Put that kind of research, that kind of not, uh, 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 toil into knowing about God? And they didn't know him at all. It's very possible to miss the forest for the trees. God chooses to hide himself from the wise and the understanding of this world and reveal himself to little children. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through their wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are what? Called. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser and the wisdom of men. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, that's why God singles out little children and says, if you can't become like them, 
you're not getting into heaven. It's so that no one can boast in the presence of God. No one is going to stand before him and be patting himself on the back on that day. Contrary to the Greeks' extolment of the Sophic philosopher, contrary to the Pharisaical Judaism's exaltation of the learned religious scholar stands Jesus, who says, I am very unimpressed with your knowledge. I am unimpressed with your religious speculation, but what I am interested in is your heart. What I would love is a relationship with you, not research about me, relationship with me. But you have to become like a child. I'm not just another rabbi that you can debate, like you can't hang in the ring with me. I'm not your peer. I am God's son. And if you want to know him, you've got to know me. And to know me, you've got to humble yourself. Friends, this isn't just a first century problem. And I just personally attest to you this morning from my own firsthand experience that some of the smartest people, some of the most knowledgeable religious people in the world do not know God. Some of the people who I know, who, who know the most about the Bible of anyone I know, know the least about the God of the Bible. They know him the least. It's entirely possible. Listen to me. Lifelong church attender. Wake up and listen to this this morning. If you hear nothing else, it is entirely possible to have grown up around the faith to have read the Bible cover to cover multiple times, to have all the Awana verses memorized, to graduate at the top of your class in the religion department from undergrad and get a full ride and straight A's through divinity school and be totally estranged from God. I know because I did it. I know because I lived it. That's my testimony. And all along the way, I met people smarter than me who knew more about the, God, uh, about the Bible than me, one of the four, world's foremost New Testament scholars on the historical Jesus who taught my New Testament class, who reviewed uh, my, uh, sat over my, my master's thesis paper on biblical inerrancy, who could quote most of the New Testament, stand up here and quote the New Testament to you all day long, from memory, from heart, and she doesn't believe any of it. Friends, don't confuse your knowledge about God for the knowledge of God. There is a world of difference. There is an eternity of difference. Hell will be filled with people who have filled their heads with knowledge about God. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 11, it's going to be worse for those people in hell. Fire is going to be hotter. You don't want to be one of those people. You don't want to be a speculator. Friends, don't settle for research about God this morning when he's offering you relationship with him. Turn to Jesus. He offers you rest from the toil of your religious speculation. Lastly, number three, perhaps the most common form of toil of them all, 
both in first century Judaism at the time of Jesus' first advent as well as today as we await his second coming. We see this all too often in churches all around the world, religious doing for Jesus. you got rejection of him, research about him, and religious doing for him. And Jesus' words in verses 28 through 30 here are a joyful, restful invitation addressed to a slave. You've got the skeptic, the speculator, and the slave. The person who thinks she's serving God, but she's really a slave to her own self-righteousness. Religious doing had become a way of life for the first century Pharisees. They made their living off of public displays of toil for God. They made sure to wait until the temple was at its most full, crowded before sounding the trumpets and coming to present their tithes and offerings in full view for everyone to see. They got out their soapboxes to perform lengthy prayers loudly for all to hear. When they fasted, Jesus said, they would disfigure their faces and moan and groan and carry on to make sure everybody knew how much they were suffering for God. Jesus said, don't be like them. He called them hypocrites. He said, they do, Matthew 23, all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, but Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you outwardly appear to be righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus said to them, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's religion. Religion is making doctrines out of the commandments of men. It reminds me of a conversation that we had recently with the Gooches, Austin and Catherine, who are in our life group. They live a few streets over from us out here in, in Chesterfield. We both live very near the Teferis Yisrael Hevra Kadisha uh, synagogue, right, right here. The Gooches live even closer to it than us, and their entire cul-de-sac, other than them, is made up of Orthodox Jews who have to live close enough to the synagogue to be able to walk there uh, on Sabbath, on Shabbat, Saturdays, because driving a car is considered too much work. and You've got to rest on the Sabbath. And so the Gooches have developed this really beautiful uh, friendship with some of these families, and they shared with us uh, recently a funny and, and yet very sad story um, the other day about one of the neighborhood Jewish children coming over and knocking on their door late at night, 9 or 10 p.m., getting them out of bed to ask if Austin or Catherine could come over and turn out the light uh, in, in the child's bedroom because the child had forgotten it was Shabbat and accidentally turned the light on. And according to rabbinic tradition, it's considered work to turn the lights on or off. And so the parents had sent the child next door to get the heathen Gentiles to come over and turn the light off so they could get to sleep. Right? I mean, this is, we laugh, right? But it's sad. This is the mindset that people all around us are, are living under the weight of religion, religious doing. But Jesus says, 
In the very next passage, mind you, Matthew chapter 12, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for me, not the other way around. And Hebrews chapter 4 says that Jesus is not only the Lord, he's the fulfillment of the Sabbath for us. We can now rest in him. Because this is not just a first century problem, friends, and it's not just a Jewish problem either. There are just as many legalistic churches right down the street here as there are legalistic synagogues filled with good Christians who have completely lost sight of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he has done for us, not the other way around. They've replaced it instead with their own religious doing for him. But Jesus, friends, let me, let me close with this, reminding you the good news of G- straight from Jesus himself. Here's the bad news first. The bad news is, if you're counting on your own righteousness when you stand before him, patting yourself on the back, your own religious doing to get into heaven, you are utterly doomed. Jesus says in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And they were professionally righteous. They prided themselves on keeping all 613 commandments of the Old Testament law. They were, they were professionals in their religious doing for God. Moreover, Matthew 23, 4 tells us they tied up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on others' shoulders. Why? Because when you're professionally religious, and that's the currency that you trade in to exert power over others to maintain your own status and authority within the religious community, that you're a part of, you you need to make sure that the common folk, the lay people, understand just how burdensome the demands of the law really are, that everyone else is unable to fulfill, but you and your pious faux righteousness are so much holier than them, and so you saddle them down with, with heavy religious burdens. Don't drive, don't turn out the lights, don't drink, don't dance, missionary position only, right? I mean, it's, it's all just the same thing. It's all just the don'ts of religion, whether you're Orthodox Jewish or you're Footloose Baptist. It's all the same. It's all works-based righteousness, pharisaical, legalistic religiosity. Jesus, this morning, is offering you so much more than that. Maybe that's the mindset some of you are, are coming out of this morning, some of the churches some of you came from were raised in. You need to hear the good news of Jesus this morning, his sweet invitation to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, not the yoke of the Pharisees. You can't carry their load. Learn from me, not them, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, it's still a yoke. Jesus has still got a burden for us. Salvation only comes through faith in him. But salvation, the good news, 
only comes, simply comes through faith in him. That's it. He's it. Believe and be saved. It's really that easy. Like, where's the catch? There's not a catch. It's that easy. Religious says, do, do, do. Jesus says, done. He said it was finished on the cross. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. His yoke is so easy and his burden is so light. Following him, being yoked with him for the rest of your days, you discover in time as you follow him, it's really no burden at all. Jesus does all the work. You're not contributing to this. You know, the, the image is two oxen pulling alongside each other. You don't contribute anything to your salvation. We're all yoked to something. We're all slaves to something. He's the only one who gives you a restful yoke because Jesus loves pulling dead weight. Friends, don't be a skeptic. Don't be a speculator. Don't be a slave to your own self-righteousness. Come to Jesus today and find serenity. Find true peace in his offer of rest for your souls. It can be yours this morning. Will you receive it? Let's pray.